<laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Movie Mumble, your monthly movie exploration and discussion podcast where four friends get together, watch a movie, and then talk about it. Based largely on the idea that we get more out of our films when we share the experience with our friends. I'm your host, Scott Murray, and I'm joined today by my... Uh, I don't really have one for y'all this this month. Sorry, a movie-related joke. Just my friends. My friends Joel Lewis. Howdy. Tim Gerard. Hello. And Zeke Perez. Hi. And Zeke is joined by his cat Hobbs. Yeah, I'm trying to aggressively <laughs> purr into my microphone. Sorry. <laughs> Zeke Cat Dodger Perez. <laughs> uh, for those of you unfamiliar, Movie Mumble is a monthly movie discussion podcast. We uh, take turns picking a film to watch, then we watch it, then we talk about it. There are no rules about the films we pick. They can be foreign, domestic, live action, animated, something we've seen a million times or never seen before. And at the end of each month, we announce what we're watching next month. So you can watch along with us if you'd like. And we do spoil everything we watch. So if you're worried about that, please watch a film before you listen to its podcast episode. I'm kind of breezing through the intro today because you're all going to hear me talk a lot. I want to cut it down because this month I was our movie selector. And I finally just pulled it up from the middle of the list where it had been basically since the inception anyway, of the podcast it's yeah. been on the list well yeah it had been rolling around stuck wallowing is the word i wanted citizen k i'll Hold for be brief applause. with my introduction <laughs> no i'll be brief with my introduction because again you already heard me a lot but i first came across this on the one hand because it's citizen k and it's constantly referenced all the time and jokes and it's hugely influential. It's talked about a lot. It gets made fun of a lot. You kind of can't not hear about it. But I first watched it in the film elements class I took in college. I think it was week two, maybe week three. And I just loved it. And I bought it. And that's that. You know, it's, as for why I brought it to the podcast, I mean, again, it's Citizen Kane. It's massively influential and sometimes called the greatest movie ever. So it was time. Uh, that said, let's rush forward into first impressions. And if you wouldn't mind this month, also mention what you knew about Citizen Kane beforehand going into this, if you all don't mind starting with that and then talking about your first impression, because that's, like I said, you can't really not have heard of this. <laughs> so I'm interested to know where you were coming from. Who would like to start? I can, I can go. I think um, we discovered last time, right? I, I'm the only one who's seen it before. Have, have either of you seen it yet? No. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I'll kick it off because of that. So this is more of a second impression for me. Uh, but the first time was in eighth grade, um, which, so this is a very different impression. And I think I mentioned on the uh, Hoop Dreams episode, I had seen Hoop Dreams, Citizen Kane. Um, Bowling for Columbine. Bowling for Columbine, right? Just a, a few other movies that like don't know that I could grasp any of those uh, as a 15-year-old or whatever. Um, watching this again, I was like, yeah, I don't think I would have liked this at, at that age in eighth grade. Right. I, so I don't know, I really don't know how much of it I remembered from that time. Um, so it was basically like a new watch for me, but yeah, second impressions this time, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I think it's, it's a notable movie for a lot of reasons and that really stands out. Um, I think one thing that stuck with me or jumped out to me right off the bat is just the, I don't know. It's interesting because it ages well in the sense that it still obviously holds up really well, but I don't know that you could do the same movie now or like do a modern interpretation of it. Right. I think it was perfect for its time. Um, right. If you made, uh, 
a, a story now about like a dying newspaper mogul and, and his life. I mean, one newspapers, uh, you know, I don't think that translates well. So what would the new thing be? Um, and even thinking of whatever that new occupation or new background for a person might be, I just don't think it fits in the same way that it did for the time this movie came out, like his rise to fame um, and riches and, and how um, he was known by everyone and their interpretations of him because of who he was. Like, I just think it was, it's such a perfect representation of its time that I don't know that it can be replicated really. Um, acting's great. There's a lot of fun stuff to get into there. Um, shot really well. I mean, there's a lot of um, really unique and really interesting and fun shots that I liked um, that we can also get to later. Um, but yeah, so I think second impressions are uh, much more positive than my first impressions because I was 15 and didn't know anything about anything back then. Thank you, Zeke. Very nice. I'm glad you liked it. I was, I know I tried to manage expectations a bit at the end of the last episode, but I was still worried. So I'm glad you liked it. Who'd like to go next? I'll go next. Um, so I guess one of the, one of the main things I kind of knew going into it is I think there was an episode of family guy where, um, they do a cutaway where it's like Peter loses his blockbuster card because he used to like splice in himself giving away the endings to movies. <laughs> so it shows the beginning of Citizen Kane. He's like, Rosebud, Rosebud. It cuts to Peter's face. He goes, it was a sled. <laughs> and it cuts back to the movie. So, so going into it, like I knew that that was the thing. Um, I think there's also a, a reference on The Office with yeah. something with, was it? Craig Robinson Gaming, yeah. and Oscar it. are talking about it. Oh, yeah. Um, so that one wasn't kind of stuck in my head as much. Um, but uh, so that was kind of what I had going into it, where it's like, okay, I know that there's the rosebud thing and the sled, um, which, which I kind of, I was glad that I had at least that much going into it. Because one of the things I was trying to do is kind of look for, and I know that it's not kind of all about the reveal of the sled at the end, but that was kind of what I was like watching for to kind of tie in, like going into it with that in mind, like, okay. And, you know, I remember like, uh, you know, at the very beginning when there's that one guy and they're talking about like, you know, and they're saying, oh yeah, you know, he hit you in the stomach with his sled. And I was like, oh, okay. Like there, there's, there's something there, like knowing, you know, that, that, the sled is important to him. Like that's going to have some significance that it was there and kind of seeing how that would have been like a throwaway line, you know, the first time you're watching it because you don't know that the sled's supposed to be important, you know, and, um, and then seeing kind of the scene where he's a kid and he's playing with his sled and the snowman and everything. So it was kind of like, okay, like, you know, I, I, I like that, uh, you know, I knew to kind of try to pay attention at least to try to as much as possible kind of piece, piece that together. Um, but aside from that, you know, even just kind of watching it casually, um, I really liked how, how grandiose it was. Like, even though, you know, you know, obviously at the beginning you can tell like, okay, that's a painting of the mansion in the background. Um, but you know, it kind of, it, it had that same sort of, you know, theatrical suspension of disbelief where even though you knew it was a painting, the fact that you had these kind of layers of, of you know, props and scenery in front of the painting that added this dimension to it. Um, and it, it was, it was really fun kind of watching that, you know, and kind of seeing, you know, okay, this is what they did before CGI, you know, and it's like, this is how they created these things that were kind of impossible. And it was kind of neat to, to appreciate that, you know, like it didn't take away from it. Like I really enjoyed it. And I, 
it kind of felt like the type of thing where it's like, oh, okay, yeah, like if if I was going to make an indie film, like this is how I would go about doing that, you know, put a put a you know big painting in the background kind of thing, you know, and how it did still have the reality to it because that was something that was physically there as opposed to using like green screen and you've got kind of an you know background placed in behind it and it just it still seems very flat in that sense so the fact that there was physically something farther away than everything else you were seeing i feel like it it added a lot of dimension to it yeah and like i really i remember like i didn't i didn't realize at first that orson wells played kane so like when they show him as an old ass man and then show him young i was like wow like this you know, they, they did a good job of buying, finding a younger actor who could look like the, you know, cause I didn't realize he was like a young guy. Like the makeup was like that good. I was like, damn, like that is impressive. You know, and it took me a while to even realize that like, it was more like, I think when they finally jumped back to when he was younger and started gradually aging him as the story kind of progressed that I was like, yeah, that, that is him. That's the same guy. Like, damn, like, well done, you know? And so that was, that was really impressive to me, you know, that they were able to pull that off. And I, I really, I liked how you, you, you know, you did get to see the same things from different perspectives, you know, like I liked how at the very beginning when they kind of do the newsreel of, of kind of snapshots of his life, but then as you're going through the story, you're seeing those in more detail in, in, in context. And I, I, I really, really enjoyed that part of it. Yeah. And I enjoyed kind of in the back of my mind, trying to like piece together the mystery yeah. So I, I think, I think, oh yeah, overall, I liked it. I still am not, am not sort of, I have my thoughts about the significance of Rosebud, but it's also one of those things where it's like, well, I'll wait till the discussion, you know, to kind of go through that. Cause it, it, it didn't kind of come across as like, oh, I understand the whole film because I knew about Rosebud going into it. Um, but I know that there are many theories on the significance of it and how, how precise it is and, and things like that. So, so yeah, so overall I, I, I did like it and I did like that it kind of left the ending kind of open-ended for me to, to have room for discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you said that Tim, cause I, you're right. The film in, as it slips into memory has sort of been simplified into its twist and nothing else. Mm. And also one interpretation of that ending has just become gospel. Right. And I think it's, you know, the fact that the ending is open to interpretation and different people are going to have different feelings about it is a big part of what makes it still a good movie, but not something anybody talks about when they reference it. So I'm, I'm interested to hear what we'll find from you. All right, Joel. I find myself in the rare position of, of liking it the least, which is not to say that I did not like it. Um, and you warned me, Scott. You said if you look at this as the the titan the titanic of film it's not going to do that for you and i i i watched it and i really i enjoyed it like i I think it was really well made i liked the 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 strokes and the the idea of how the story was put together i i enjoyed it and it was like i don't think i've ever seen an orson welles performance before this so the second the dude is on screen i'm like dude lights up the fucking screen like he he is a force i to to quote, I think it was Zeke said last last episode about playtime. I was enjoying more reading about and watching interviews and breakdowns of it after the fact, because it's like you just watch cinema and you don't realize that all the things that you love and everything else started here, because the the whole um, deep focus 
is yes. that there's no yes. background, there's no foreground. It's just all in the frame, in the midground, and everything's in focus. That's my favorite thing in cinema. And the reason yes. I know about it is because of Stalker. Stalker really, really grinds that hard. But, I mean, it was used before this film, but this film made it canon, made it, it, it invented that language of filmmaking. So on the first watch, I was just kind of like, this is, this is really entertaining and really interesting. And kind of the first shot of kind of the, the fisheye lens with the snow globe dropping and the kind of mirrored effect. I was like, that first shot after the newsreel, I was like, this is a really, well, I guess it's before the newsreel, but it's like, that's a really challenging shot for 1941. Like, it's not something, and I, I guess like the critical reception at the time was that it was panned. And so I, I, to answer the question you asked, Scott, about first, like what we knew about it going in, I knew, I knew there was a sled. I knew Rosebud was important. I knew it was Orson Welles, but everything else I didn't know. And I was kind of frustrated at the end of last episode where you gave us the shot by shot breakdown. And then we get to the newsreel and it tells you everything again. So it's not like, yep. And yep. so it, it, I, I, I did appreciate that you ruined it, but you didn't ruin it. Cause it's not yeah. about the structure and you didn't go into like specifics about what happened, but it, it's very much, I, I didn't have any grasp of what was going on in the film until you told us about it last episode. And like I said, I was like really kind of miffed going into it. It was like, Oh fuck. I know what exactly happens. But it didn't matter because you don't. It, yeah, yeah. It, it's it was it was really, and it was cool to kind of pick out as I was watching. It's like, well, Raiders stole this, and Shia LaBeouf stole that, and like all of the different references was really interesting to watch and 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 kind of see played out. And it just made me like really fascinated by the story surrounding it. I'm more interested in see Mank now because I know the, the source material of the, the film. And it's, it's, it's something that I would really like to rewatch. Cause I think that for, once you get over the hurdle of the first watch, I feel like now you can really, I don't know, like sit back and enjoy it. it. Yeah. And, and kind of use more. Cause I think with the, the newsreel, it was just so fast. And it was really long. That was something that was kind yeah, of challenging small. about it. So it was just, and it, it felt very, it was very collages. I mean, the whole film is kind of a collage, kind of how things are put together. And it's kind of like these disparate story narratives from different narr narrators. But with yeah. that sequence, it was just like a whole lot, really loud, really like in your face. And then it kind of softened and quieted into the recollections. And that was really refreshing. So it's, it's, it's almost two films in that sense. So it, it was like, yeah, I'm. I I was, I really enjoyed it, but also I was like, well, this doesn't do for me what it does for Scorsese, for example, right? Because Scorsese loves this film, and every interview yeah. he's like, I want. This is how I I was really aware of the camera and like how to shoot things. I was like, well, I for me that was Stalker, like, and Stalker obviously takes mm -hmm. some of its DNA from this. So it's, I, I really respect it and I, I enjoy it, but I don't know that it'll ever be something that I own or is like, Hey, everybody, let's watch this. And that's kind of what I didn't want to spoil last episode was that the reason Citizen Kane gets talked about so much as such a great movie is because of all these things that it did either first or, you know, sort of finalized that have since become part of the cinematic lexicon. Yep. Of filmmaking and now 
oh yeah, we see it all over the place. It's normal. Right. So that's yeah, it loses some of that luster. I, I'm glad you mentioned the deep focus, the the lighting, the, the way lighting the camera is impeccable. Is I, I will say, like lighting might be my favorite thing in this film. The second that they're in that uh, uh, newspaper room and they're going to do the story and they're like the silhouettes and the shadow, I'm like, fuck yeah. Uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, the lighting is brilliant. The the camera is very mobile and moves around a lot, sometimes a little bit, sometimes great distances. Uh, the way the edges of the frame are handled, the in, in theater, we would have said blocking the spacing, right? With the actors and the sets and everything is placed very deliberately, not just for this shot, but for the next shot and the next. You know, there's a, a brilliant bit. I'll get to that later. I just, so much of this is either new from Citizen Kane or finally coalesced into something real for Citizen Kane. And then people continued to use that in filmmaking for 60 years and then, you know, we started watching movies, right? So yeah, part of why it was a cluster, but you know, the, even, even then a lot of the things it did, people took the wrong lesson from, you know, the way the camera moves. Sometimes cameras just move it's it's kind of ridiculous, you know, for the to, sake to, of moving. <laughs> right, and the camera always is always move, motivated to move by what's happening, by the story that's being told, the characters and the motion and the objects on the screen. You know, it's it's just we're following the story as opposed to being shown the story. I guess if that's a, a subtle distinction, I the 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 blocking again, the spacing of people and objects works in concert with the lighting to draw focus naturally to different parts of the frame or objects, even when the camera isn't moving, yeah. right? And it's almost like a holdover from live theater where, you know, the light comes up here and people are over here and then the light comes down as they walk off stage and that fades and they get farther from you and the people come in. But it was finally translated into a smaller mobile frame that could work in a three-dimensional space. You know, it, yeah, that's, that's great. I, I'm not answering my own question, but... I saw the film in my, you know, film elements class, and I just liked it for what it was. I just went, you know what? That's an entertaining story, so I bought it. And then it, the more I rewatched it, the more I got to dig into what our professor had only been able to hint at, because we only had one week to talk about Susan Kane. About oh, I'm seeing this everywhere. That there's that bit, and there's that bit, and there's that bit. So I now keep it around again, just as one of many films I like and sometimes rewatch, but. I also really love to talk people's ears off about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we get to favorite scenes, let's talk more about what you three brought up in your introductions, because you all had other stuff you wanted to talk about. So let's do that. Let's go there first. I'm going to jump in and talk about lighting real quick. Since it, it, like, yeah, the, please. I didn't realize that Orson was a stage director and actor first which is kind of like how he got into the business like this is a huge big deal for him to Lampin get this at movie the end, if you saw the credits these actors who had never done a film before but mm -hmm. they had all worked yeah. together at the mercury yeah. theater so apparently like on the first couple weeks of set like he didn't know that there were lighting crews so he was setting up the lighting like he would a stage show like he had like so much like so much gusto and also so much naivete about how filmmaking worked that he was just like embedded into all these things and like the the lighting seriously like i i mean everything else 
when I went back and rewatched, I was like, oh, that's really innovative. Like kind of they pan from outside with the snowman through the window to the in the, the foreground and establishing like the the deep focus with the triangle of uh the the lawyer and the mom and the dad in the background and like the power dynamics of like they're all and that it just that was just like film language like for me it's just like yeah i'm processing and this i wasn't really like latching on to how sophisticated that was treating the camera like an eye that's what orson talked about is like I, and he he I really like, this has just made me love Orson Welles as ridiculous a man as he ended up becoming like drunkenly doing ads for like canned peas and champagne. Like, and it, it was really weird to see him kind of like as a thin young man. Cause I always think of Orson as this big, almost walrus of a man commanding to the back row. And, and it was, that was a really cool thing. But what I was going to say about the lighting is the lighting held up, and was really strong and really dynamic. And that that didn't feel like it had uh, been incorporated into the background of everything that came from cinema later. I was just like, really, anytime a director will really use shadow and is not afraid of like shrouding things and just using silhouettes, I'm, I'm all the way here for it. So that was really incredible. I didn't really bring up much else in my introduction, but I wanted to talk about lighting because I thought it was incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Tim, you mentioned uh, latching on to. Yeah. So. I mean, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no. In a week. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Thank you. So, so one of the things that kind of, uh, and I'll use the term lightly, occurred to me, like, not like, oh, this is something I noticed. And, and, and again, I don't know much about it. So I don't know if this has been discussed before. And it's like, yeah, everyone says that, but like, like one of the, the, the connections that I, that I saw was the idea of him, um, like collecting statues, like that to me kind of like, was like, oh, well, you know, the, the, the scene we see him as a kid, he has a snowman. So is that sort of like kind of him, you know, in, in that sense, latching onto that moment? Cause like, you know, what else is a statue, but this like fake white human. You know, I've never thought of that. Um, wow. So that was the one thing that that I kind of saw is like that that would have led from that moment, like the trauma of that moment, kind of dictating how he kind of you know like because otherwise, like why why is he collecting statues? You know, what I mean, and we finally get to see at the end in in Xanadu where you know he it looks like a museum, but the you know at first they're all just kind of like you know stuffed in a room, you know, and it's like um, you know, and it kind of made me think of of. I guess the, the sled that same way, like, well, what else, you know, what else is he connecting? Like, what is, what is it from that moment that the sled represents that he's kind of, you know, doing. And um, I mean, visually, and, and again, this is also more surfacey was when they show that, that scene at the end when they're packaging everything up and you have kind of all the, the crates, you know, that you have these statues and these crates. So it was kind of like, to me, that kind of had a, a visual, uh, connection to like okay the sled and the snowman kind of thing where like you know the, the the sled where it's like you know kind of these boards of wood and seeing these crates boxed up that the you know, boxed up so it was kind of like okay is that kind of like you know part of that connection especially because it was amidst all the stuff that he was kind of you know that was there that they were throwing out you know kind of throwing in the incinerator um so that was kind of one of the, the little things that i kind of noticed uh, aside from just like i said following uh, rosebud and and throughout the story um That's you know interesting and, and, with like snowman and the snow globe as being like kind of these capturing 
the present moment, right? Like the idea yeah. of the, the, the snow globe is perpetually winter and it's this snapshot of a moment. Um, and sculpture being similar to that where it's like these, these, but it's also like a testament to like the man, right? Like Kane is all about Kane at the end. Like Xanadu is a huge monument. He's trying to leave something behind, or at least I think he is something that is, will survive the test of time. And then it ends up being thrown in the fire. <laughs> like, so I think it, it's also kind of interesting with the, the kind of comparison between what he spent his life making, like, in print news, right? Everything about paper and this, like, it, it, it doesn't stick around. It, it's, it's, it deteriorates. It's this fragile kind of uh, medium where he made his name, right? The big cane in all of those headlines, but it was like, there always had to be another one. It always had to be another one. So I, I think it's a really interesting, like idea to think about the man trying to preserve moments because they become so fleeting with the events of his life. I mean, we see him in the newsreel, like every headline, every little snapshot of his life kind of rapid fire, and we don't get these kind of firm moments. And I think the statues seem to mirror that idea of like Rosebud being, and we can talk about what we think Rosebud means, I, but like just capturing moments and trying to live, because it goes by so fast, even when we get into like more relaxed um, narrative of the different narrators talking about the like three segments of his life. It's still going so fast that he's losing it. Like we're losing it. Like we're trying to latch on to the different parts of his life and connect the pieces. And it's just spiraling really, really quickly and going wrong really, really fast. Um, that's really, I hadn't thought about the snowman being equated with the statue collecting. That's awesome. That's really yeah. cool. Never heard anything like that. Um, yeah, I mean, so uh, aside from that, like there was nothing, you know, and again, like, I also wonder with Rosebud, if I was like looking too hard, cause I mean, it kind of, again, I, I feel like if I had seen this without knowing that you see the sled at the end and you probably like your brain's going to try to think back through everything and, you know, but kind of going into it that way, it was kind of like, okay, yeah. Like it was, it was kind of like his childhood and him kind of, you know, the point that he was taken away from, you know, he had this life where, you know, he was, he was a child who was with his parents. I mean, we, you know, we kind of get a hint from the, his mom that his, you know, that he needed to get away from his father, but, you know, we don't really know to what extent, you know, like he was unhappy there or if you, you know, and, um, you know, and then the other, the other thing that kind of stuck out is, yeah, like they mentioned him hitting the guy in the stomach and how he kind of holds it up. It was like, almost like a shield, like he was putting it between him and, and the guy, you know? Um, so, so that part of it, you know, but again, it's just kind of like, yeah, it was all the the stuff, you know, kind of like with, like with his home, like everything he had to leave behind and go kind of start this whole new life. Um, you know, and, 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 and it's weird too. Yeah. Cause I, I, I also didn't notice until you see the snow globe, like, I don't think you really ever see like snow or cold weather. Not that I can remember anyway, you know, until he sees the snow globe. So it's this like amazing contrast that we have this beautiful snowy day and him playing in the snow and throwing a snowball and making a snowman and playing with his sled. And then the rest of it is just kind of like cityscape. And, you know, yeah, now that I'm looking back, I can't remember much about what the weather was like if we ever do see like snow outside or or rain or anything. But you know, when when we do see that snow globe, when he picks it up, 
and you're kind of like, oh, you know, like, like, the, you know, that it kind of did jump out at me that it's almost like this, you know, it's like, had, had he not seen snow since he was a kid, you know, has he been just like living? And I mean, not that cities don't get snow, um, but like, you know, they didn't, they definitely didn't show that. And, you know, and it definitely, I think, helped to kind of harken back to that, that, that moment from his childhood. And you know, maybe that was the last time he did see snow or at least like that or, or play in the snow or whatever. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, that's plus, that's the only time we really, I think, see him as a child, right. We don't really see that actor come in again. I don't think, right. you know, so, so anyway, like, you know, I, like to me, it kind of just seemed like, yeah, it's, it's, it's his childhood. It's, you know, the, you know, when he's trying to get all the stuff back from his mom, you know, and, and, you know, it's like, yeah, he's, he's trying to like reclaim those things, which, you know, I, I, I totally get that, you know, um, which I thought it was kind of weird though, that like, like Rosebud was in his house. Like, was it, did it just come in with so much other stuff that he didn't know it was there? Did he forget how important it was Something to him? I've never noticed before is that when he meets the sinner, he says that he's on his way, his mom has died and he's on his way to a storage unit where all her stuff got crammed because there wasn't space for it in the house she died in. And he says something about, I was going to go look for her. And that's it. And he's dead. Oh, okay. Goes off with the sinner. So I think that, yeah, it just got carted off into storage with all that stuff and then just stayed there until he moved everything from that storage into Xanadu. I think it's not far-fetched at all to say that it was just in a pile and he never really saw it again. Although I only noticed that this time, which is mm -hmm. like watch number eight for me. So, mm -hmm. yeah. It's not interesting also with the, the power of the snow and it like, when he grabs the snow globe, snow is superimposed over where he is in Xanadu. And that's what fades into the recollection. So like precipitation is really important in this because we don't see it that much. I mean, the closest to the other like elements it might've been was when he got uh, caked with mud from the, like the taxi that went away or something like when he meets, um, Miss Alexander, the singer in quotation marks. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, a couple of things, um, Tim, that you said that, that I was thinking of or that, that sparked for me was um, like one, you said earlier, I forgot how or didn't realize how prominently the sled features just so upfront right in the beginning of the movie, right? You have the guy saying, yep, he hit me with the sled. And when they take him away, you get that really long shot of the sled sitting there in the snow and snow falling on it and getting covered over and kind of forgotten, um, you know, and then that's the last you see of it and, until the big reveal. But same thing for me going back and seeing it again, right? Like it's just one of those cultural things that, you know, Rosebud is the sled and you feel like it's supposed to be this big twist and it is, but like watching it again or watching it with that in mind, you, you know, the sled is kind of front and center um, from the very start. And then, you know, what you were talking about last, um, you know, not to go to book report uh, symbolism on this, but I, I don't know. If it, there was ever a film that <laughs> to do that for, this is the one. Yeah. <laughs> right. But it's interesting that he finishes his life in Florida, right? And like he's changed so much from a child and he moves to a place and builds this big palace in a place without snow, right? And I, you got me thinking, like, do we ever see snow again? And I was just thinking, it's interesting that he dies and move, you know, moves to, and then dies in a place just, or, you know, has his estate in a place without snow so far from the place where he grew up. Um, sim symbolism, right? How much he's changed from that childhood version of himself. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. And it was an interesting one to watch again, just to think about the, like one, the physical stuff that he builds up and then is just thrown in the fire. But two, um, a line that really hit me, and I don't know if it's maybe favorite scene territory, but you have the reporter who's trying to get the scoop and find out what Rosebud is, and he's interviewing all these people. And the whole movie is just interviews with these people. And you get to the end when they're um, standing among his riches, right? And the camera zooms out. And they're all talking and they ask the reporter, well, you know, what did you learn? Did you find anything out? What did you learn about his life? He says, nothing really. And it's like the whole, you know, you, you learn everything about this man from who he is as a child, you know, people he fell in love with, uh, you know, what he did wrong to ruin those relationships, how he kind of became cruel and hardened over the years and just every, you know, step along the way that we get to see all for it to end up with his stuff in a fire. And then someone saying, yeah, I didn't learn anything about this guy because I couldn't figure out what this word meant. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, that's some deep shit, Orson Welles. On the yeah. other hand, he says, one of the reporters in that group says something to the effect of maybe a man's life can't be summed up by a word. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, yeah. it's funny for him to say that because if they were to then realize, like, if not by a word, and not by you listening to his living friends recount his entire life, then how? How do you explain a man? I, I really like those final words, but there's too many of them. I think when when he go he says, maybe it can't be summed up by one word, that's great. But when he goes into the jigsaw stuff, I'm like, it's so fucking on the nose. And it was really twee. And then they burn the fucking sled. And I'm like, redeemed. That is exactly how that shit was supposed to go down. How punk rock for 1941. Like, it, it was just like, it was too neat. It's like, maybe it is like a jigsaw. It's just like, see, like, hey, mister. Like, it is Christmas Day, Mr. Scrooge. And I fucking love Dickens. So for me to talk shit about it right now is a big deal. But like it, it just it was just like too neat. I, I liked the sentiment that maybe it can't be. And if it just been that, I, I don't know if Mank needed to just go through it. I mean, Mank wrote this under fire and it was not a leisurely drafting process, but that was a little odd. And then they burned the sled. I was like, OK, that that that's a great counterpoint to it, like the kind of harsh reality of of what your life ends up being a summation of is all the shit you've collected in. And it's really depressing Cash. for a materialist who does nothing <laughs> if not consume and collect to know that when I'm gone, my testament will be the shit that somebody has to go through. Like, so the people who are saying all that nonsense is the reporters though. And the right. only two times we interact with them start and finish is when they're not really concerned about his life or the quality of it or about the man they just want to tell their story and sell papers like, i also love that like, like would have done. that comes at the end of a newsreel with all of the other like they've told the story like yeah <laughs> they're like we have to we have to put the final stamp the final chapter rosebud the end that has to be <laughs> Can we not get the movers talking to the reporters, though? Like, we've got a, a massive search for what this word means, and, and you're just going to have a mover just chuck the sled into the... Like, you, you didn't hear them talking for days on big end about oh, we need to find cheaper. Rosebud. Like, can you, yeah. come on, guys. Like, read before you start throwing shit in fire. Like, I help. Think... You, you paid for come an on. opinion or you paid to haul stuff? <laughs> We're just extras on this picture, Mr. Orson Welles. 
that's a great like read before you throw things in the yeah. fire is a like, great oh, t-shirt I, I've, <laughs> I've heard 10 people talking about what does rosebud mean for a week maybe you i don't think it could be this, this sled. Thing says, right? in in 82 point font just printed right on the sled you're just gonna throw that in there also, what a weird name for a sled, right? Like, can we just for a second, like, <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> Is it slicing through the snow? I guess it's a brand winter sled. <laughs> I don't know. So I don't know. I, I decided to just Google rosebud sleds on the off chance that, that was a real thing. <laughs> and that Wells just picked a, a children's toy to be his mm -hmm. thing, right? Mm -hmm. But um you know, initial couple of pages of results here don't seem to indicate. It seems like he chose that mm -hmm. on purpose and that it wasn't the real thing. Well, I think it also, like, it has to be deliberately named confusing, right? Like, because if Rosebud was naturally... Right. Yeah, if it was, like, rough or, like, a red wagon or something, we'd know it's a fucking red wagon. Like, right. so I... or, right. or The whole discussion the... at the beginning of the film, was Rosebud a woman he knew? Was it a racehorse they lost money right. on? Was it... Who knows, right? Yeah. Lost a million dollars on a horse. She I forgot to talk earlier about... <laughs> she just... Sorry, I had to do some Calvin uh, Fisher. I forgot to... No, no, please. Thank you. I forgot to talk earlier about the non-linear structure of the film, which again is a film told through flashbacks is kind of not that exciting these days. And a film told non-linearly is there are enough of them around, right? It's, it's not normal, but it's not surprising. But it was at the time. Again, that's the other thing that was a kind of a big deal. And then that it was laid out so easily, it could be followed so easily was great. And then the way each chapter was bookended by the reporter interviewing the friend or ex-wife or business manager or whatever. I just, again, all of that was something that was, if not invented by Kane, then sort of brought together and solidified by it. And it's something we've seen all over the place since then, but never really managed to pin down. And the reason it works is because of that crazy newsreel we get because the newsreel gives you the the wikipedia right yep. the a to z here's his life done but the people's testimonies that make up the bulk of the film it, it ends up being kind of linear you know he can't the ex-wife won't speak to him so he ends up having to go start with the memoirs of the banker as our childhood and you know then the uh the best friend talks about the founding of the newspaper which we only barely talked about in the memoirs and then the the business partner guy bernstein gives us the whole newspaper career up to its closure including the introduction of the second wife and then the second wife gives us you know all the rest of his death but even then there are things we don't ever talk about or hear about except for when he's running for governor there's no trace of the involvement in social and political movements that the newsreel talked about. Right. We don't ever see when he's traveling out of the country, ever. We talk about how much he does it. Nope, we just see the statues piled up in the newspaper office. You know, it, Because we're only seeing the parts of his life that those people saw, that they knew. And that's a, I don't want to say unreliable narrator, but you know, not omniscient, right? They're just right. people. And the story is kind of full of holes, and maybe there's some bias and different perspectives, but the thing is, because we already have that A to Z of the Wikipedia entry, newsreel, we already know where to place these things, 
in his broader life, and it helps us keep track. So as as tedious as that newsreel is the first time through, it really pays off. No, it absolutely does. It, it de definitely like establishes the structure, and I mean even with that kind of like guiding you along, it's really a sophisticated way of telling the story. Like it, it's not just a fragmented narrative. Like it, it's in these kind of sounders of three with these different, like, I, I don't know that anything's really attempted that since like, even with the, the kind of like reflective, I mean, Rashomon is uh, Kurosawa's film about kind of reflection. And those are actual, there, there's actual, unreliable narrators in that movie and i mean that comes after this is in some ways inspired by this but um yeah it's almost like you have to have your narrators in this be reputable even though they have fragmented recollections because it's so complex and sophisticated to go through these different um yeah no i i and this <laughs> another rare uh uh not even rare on this podcast. The more you talk about something, the more you're enjoying it. <laughs> I want to go back to talk about the cinematography again for a moment, especially about the one takes they do, single takes. I know I've talked your ears off about the YouTube channel, Every Frame of Painting before. <laughs> um, listeners, if you're not aware, that was a completed YouTube channel. It's still up. They ended in 2017, 2016. And it's a series of video essays about film and film form and different aspects. It's really great, super interesting. Go check it out. They have a really excellent video about what they call the Spielberg Wonner. Let's just say Spielberg version of the Wonner, a one take, the long take, right? And they talk a bit about how these almost masturbatorily long, you know, 800 minutes, single shot, ah, you know, is sort of just going out of control. But in particular, we talk about how Spielberg has this really clever way of doing these shots that are sort of medium length and then are, are one shot disguised as multiple shots. Um, so it's a picture of the scene from Jaws where they cross on the ferry. Oh, God, the camera is mounted that? on the edge of the ferry. So the ferry is moving the whole time. So the background is changing. And as the characters have conversations, they walk around the ferry and change from shot to shot to shot. We start with a group of people two of the characters approach and now we've got a shot of only two people in close-up on their face and then they walk out and one of them steps across and now we have a you know what i mean and instead of editing that together with cut 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 jump 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 spielberg did it all as one shot and it's not this super long a long uh, one take you know that the people brag about it's this really clever mixed very fluid one shot well anyway in that video they talked about how that was once a very typical, very classic filmmaking system in the 40s and 50s, and how as it sort of died out, Spielberg has been left as one of its few modern practitioners. Well, man, I just kept seeing him in Citizen Kane. And it's interesting because they, they also bring up the point that those types of wonders are kind of invisible because, again, they're disguised as multiple shots, right? So even though there's no cut, it still feels like multiple separate and I yeah, I just I saw it for the first time in Kane and I kept seeing it again and again and again. The scene where he buys out the other newspaper staff and they have the celebratory party and they bring in the dancing girls and everything, right? The camera who's which has been up high the whole time to see the whole room. 
lowers to the end of the table where it's just best friend and the business partner. Yep. And now it's a two-person shot, but Kane is still in it in the background, thanks to the deep focus stuff and the lighting. So it's actually a three-person shot as the two of them have their conversation across and in front of Kane. Then when one of them like leans in conspir- like a like conspirator and and they kind of get quieter, the whole camera turns right. And we're focused now on just them at the table in a corner of the room, and the crowd has vanished. But reflected in the window is Kane, still in between the two. Oh, like, I, again, it's, you know, it's been there the whole time, and I've somehow never seen it. And in this case, the video on series was absolutely right about that kind of wonder was completely invisible to me. It just flowed naturally with the action of the scene from shot to shot to shot. I'm really interested now to look at more films from the 40s and 50s and from older cinema and see if that's really present in a lot of places, if that's another major inspiration. Something I'm seeing a lot in kind of the the 60s um, Italian films that I've been watching, I'm obsessed with Michelangelo uh, Antonioni right now. And it, it's all about that. It's all about the deep focus and it's all about revealing previously obscured parts of the shot or or set dressing as the dynamics of the characters change and it's not cutting away. And I think it it harkens back to what Orson was talking about is wanting to use the camera as your eye because there's sleep is the only cut you get in, in your life, like in, in the cinema of your life, right? Like you blink, but the continuity is the same. Like, so those kind of shots is how the eye perceives things. I mean, something recently I watched Point Break, which is fucking amazing, and we need to watch it. Um, but the the which Point Break, the original. <laughs> I haven't seen either how of them. Dare you? So I haven't seen either of them, so I really don't know. Okay. But like the opening, uh, the the bank robbery scene is very much like uh, in the middle of the action, and the the camera kind of whirls left and right as an eye would and there's not cutting between it it's it's just kind of like spurred on by the the action that's going on around you and perceived as if the eye is whipping around and kind of perceiving that so i i think it's 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 something that might have fallen out of american filmmaking but i think in in italian cinema and the the kind of international it's always been part of the film i mean obviously stalker is very much in the same tradition of those kind of long, some would say masturbatory sequences. Um, and it's really interesting with the job, cause I mean, there's not much Spielberg does bad. Like, and for him to have like the quintessential one is also a, a culmination of that long form, but also kind of the Kurosawa motion in frame. Cause you, yes. you watch any kind of mo- movement of, of soldiers on horses in, in like ran or um, some of his other like uh, uh, throne of blood where it's, it's, he just doesn't move the fucking camera, but so much is happening dynamically within the frame that it, it your eye does the camera movement for you. So it, it's like, and for the, the motion on the barge in that scene from jaws is, it's just like a, a crystallization of all these film influences in one great breathtaking sequence and what's even more interesting is wells himself did one of those masturbatory long takes in touch of evil i mean it's it's a brilliant shot it's incredible it's not to call it masturbatory is extremely rude it's more to do with 
you know, you get to the point where they brag about the length, right? As opposed mm. to when it served a purpose, right? But yeah, Touch of Evil opens with a single four-minute long take. It's amazing. But Wells did it. So now we're in a, a section of cinema where that standard set by Wells in Citizen Kane is being taken over by a, a, a permutation of a different one-off thing that Wells did in a different movie. Mm-hmm. Plus, doesn't a lot of that come from that originally films were done by, like like this was, by theater actors who you, you only get one take. You know, you're on stage, right. you don't get to do take two. And then as Hollywood grew, wasn't it more like friends of the producers who weren't necessarily actors who probably couldn't necessarily learn lines and it's like okay we just just say the fucking line and we'll edit it in you know and you know the kind of the way film evolves where yeah originally it was people who their whole job was doing a whole thing in one take you know so it probably seemed natural to just be like yeah why would we cut this up and do it in parts when when you're on stage you just do it once and okay that's you know take it or leave it kind of thing yeah like they're already cutting it up for other reasons or by necessity or set changes. So then, yeah, they can, they're free to just, the seat is going to be as long as it needs to be. And this shot is going to be as long as it needs to be until we have a reason to change it. And everyone went, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great insight. I don't, I don't know about that. That's really cool. So Zeke did some some reframing of of his video. He's he's taking some of the start. <laughs> Sorry, we've all talked. I haven't. We haven't heard from Zeke in a minute. Um, no, I I was just thinking about the shots um, that that Scott talked through. I think, and not to jump too early to favorite scenes, but those are the ones that really stuck with me. Um, were the uh, you know the one where they're having the party and he's in the background um, and they're talking about him. And then the one where his parents are talking about him and he's outside playing through the window. Um, yeah, just, uh, I, I don't know. I just really enjoyed those. And I think um, this is one of those movies that really makes me think about how something as simple as a shot like that can, can add so much more to the storytelling and, and to the, the commentary and the narrative and everything and the plot even um, just about how characters are blocked and how it's shot. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, the other thing I was dwelling on is just, this is one of those movies, right? We've talked about, it did a lot of things first. And so you kind of see it now and it's doing things that you maybe take for granted because you've seen how many other movies, you know, have a nonlinear story or shoot things this way or light things this way. So I don't know. I was just thinking that this is one of those movies that if I could fire up the DeLorean and go see for the first time, like in that era, like it would be pretty amazing to, to go back and, see this in the theater the first time and and i don't know just experience it not having seen anything else like it um which i think is one of the reasons why it's selected as one of those movies that's important for you know all of the reasons that it is culturally important and is kind of put on that pedestal because it, it deserves to be what i was trying to say without spoiling you know at the previous episode was that yeah it's it is super important for those reasons but not necessarily for the quality of its plot doesn't mean it's a bad plot it's good but you know people go back and then go most influential movie of all time or most important of all time and it doesn't you don't think about the way it was made you think about the entertainment value to the person sitting in the seat which is why i think it's really important nowadays to sort of preface this film a little bit um 
And then speaking of, Citizen Kane's a great movie for expanding your cinematic literacy because you could see all of these things that became a part of cinema all in one place and they're all very plain to see and you see them repeated throughout the movie. So I'm really interested now to see as we all watch more movies together, if the rest of you start seeing things in other movies and going, ooh, that was in Kane. Ooh, Kane did that. Ooh, because suddenly you have this visual understanding of things that filmmakers were doing for basically the rest of the 20th century. And that's one of the things that happened to me. Admittedly, I was in a class at the time about film elements, so that probably helped. But yeah, I still see things and go, oh yeah, they did that in Citizen Kane, or oh, that reminds me of that. It, it, it's still taught in film schools to this day, partially, again, because of its historical significance as being the the thing that popularized and solidified a lot of this, but again, partially because it still serves as a really great, easy to grasp visual example of different aspects of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. That was it. That's a, that's a good point. Sorry, I, I, no, I, I'm, yeah, I think that's a good point because I feel like a lot of the time, or some of the time anyway, I feel like, uh, feel like the dumb one on movie mumble because like certain things will, like I can't quite put a finger on it or, um, you know, things, techniques or approaches to a movie or the dialogue or whatever, or, or I don't know, little intricacies are going over my head. Um, but I, I like this one. I think, like you said, because so much of it is just easier to grasp and it's, it's very plain to see. So I, I definitely feel like I picked up some stuff for my, um, I said it so well earlier, like my, uh, movie vernacular, I guess. That's not what y'all said, but I'll use that. But yeah, there's certain things now that I, I have an eye for, have words for, and um, I liked it for those reasons too. You're the pretty one on the podcast. <laughs> Don't lie to me. <laughs> no, I can't you have the best beard of all of us. I can't eat for a podcast. That's all I <laughs> you got. You got a face for radio. <laughs> Do you I didn't mean that to be a diss. I love you. <laughs> Do those cover your favorite scenes as well, Zeke? Yeah, those, and then um, I really did like the, the the credits and how they queued that up, and they were just very straightforward about like, look at these people who've never acted before, and let's tip our caps to them. I, I thought that was nice. I was like, that's a really sweet way to intro these people, and I like that a lot too. So I'd add that as another favorite. Yeah. Also, Can, speaking of yeah. credits, I like how it was like special effects, and it was like what one or two people <laughs> compared to <laughs> nowadays. It's like yeah. five minutes of names scroll studio. Yeah. <laughs> Guys who held the fire hose for the rain scene, right? right. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to tell us about your favorite scenes, Tim? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like, and I'm glad you kind of brought up the plot because I didn't want to kind of, you know, I was trying to stay mostly positive, but yeah, I feel like the what I what I liked about it overall was visually, yeah, it was everything was so grandiose, and I loved that. I loved looking at just about every minute of it but i did feel like the story didn't justify how grandiose the visuals were you know it was just kind of like here's this dude and you know sure he was this mogul and it's like like okay and, and yeah i don't know maybe part of it's also just like for me you know and, and I, I know that's part of what they're playing with like he had all this quote-unquote success but was he really happy as a result of it And it was kind of like you know for me it, the, the story didn't connect kind of personally, but, but again, like I, I, 
I loved looking at every minute of it. Um, however, one thing I did notice is that like kind of the older he got and the meaner he got, I, I enjoyed it less, I think, because of that, because like he was so engaging in the meeting. So I guess part of my, my favorite scenes were like kind of the young him, the really spunky, the kind of like, you know, oh, well, you know, and, and next year, last year it lost a million dollars. This year it might lose a million dollars. Next year it might lose a million dollars, you know, but oh, I guess in 60 years I'll have to sell it, you know? And he was just kind of like, <laughs> fuck it, we're doing this, you know? And, and it's like, like that part of him, I, I really enjoyed, but yeah, it seemed to like, as it moved along and, and maybe that was part of it, maybe he was young enough to be optimistic and have be like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm ambitious. I'm going to do these things and they're going to be great. And then the more he found that the more he did, it didn't really bring him fulfillment, kind of the more depressing it got. And it was just kind of like the, the, it, it just made kind of the movie itself a downer. And, and, you know, again, and that's probably part of the point to the, to where you get to Xanadu and, and the scenes like inside Xanadu with, with him and, and the singer, you know, like, I think those were some of my favorites. It was just like, Oh man, like look at this place and like how big the fucking fireplace was. And it was just like, yeah. it was it, like, it was so epic, but, but again, and, and I think the purpose of why it was so epic was to kind of show how hollow his life was, you know? So like in, in that point, I, like, I think that for me is one of my favorite scenes because, you know, it's like he, he, at that point he couldn't possibly have gotten, more stuff you know but it was still it was so so empty you know uh, and i also love that remark when, when she's like yelling at him he's like we're not at home we're in a tent we're right here i can hear you, <laughs> you know like just to kind of call through that it's like he you know he even realized like how far apart they are when they're in this in this place he acknowledged how ridiculous the house was <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so so yes i think i don't know like i guess as far as favorite scenes like in terms of visually it was like almost all of it you know i mean there were there were a few scenes that i did find kind of also boring because they had a more mundane quality and again they were probably supposed to like when he goes after her her premiere when he goes to talk to his friend and he got drunk writing the review and they're just kind of sitting in his office with him his head on the the typewriter you know which again i think like to me it was kind of like oh it's because this is his friend's office so it's supposed to feel more claustrophobic you know this isn't you know his things which are big and grandiose and spacious and stuff like that um so there were certain scenes like that where it's like okay i know this has to play out for the sake of the story but it's like i'm not i definitely wasn't as engaged when the visuals weren't as like uh, as much of a focus and I, I also i really liked uh in the from uh, from a mean point of view i also really liked the the, the voice lesson scene um because <laughs> that was just like you know having having worked with different types of, of musicians and just different types of music teachers um you know even though that that teacher was kind of a, a shitty human being the way he was treating her uh you definitely get to points when you're, you're trying to teach someone and it's like, you're, you're just like, just, just fucking sing the right note. Like, why can't you do this? <laughs> you know, like, but then like the way he came in and just kind of like laid down the law, which again, I felt, I felt conflicted about because it's like, Hey, good for him. And, and I guess, you know, naively you kind of think, Oh, he's sticking up for his wife, but it's like, no, again, it's all about him. It's like, you know, I can't possibly, you know, have a wife who can't sing, like you're going to teach her how to sing, you know, and, and like that type of thing. So I can, build anything, of, I can succeed at anything. 
Mm-hmm. I can make things happen. Yeah. 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 So it's, it, it, you know, I, I, I enjoyed like the familiarity of it, but also like the complexity of it. And yeah, it was, it was shitty Yeah, in a lot of ways. Like it was shitty the way that the teacher was being, it was shitty the way he was being, but like, it was still just kind of like, and it was weird too. I also kind of like wondered why, the 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 teacher it was almost like he's he just like resigned himself to stop trying to teach her and and again i feel like there are parts of me that i kind of almost acknowledge with that it's like yep you're right keep doing what you're doing this is yep (laughs) you know because you're obviously not listening to me and what i'm doing is not helping so sure we'll go with your way of doing it i think Um, the other thing about just to about the singer thing is like that's all about why he lost his wife because and the the admission of he said I, I had to be honest I put singer in quotation marks in my own fucking paper, the whole reason he's pushing that so hard is no she is a singer I will make her a singer so I don't look bad she she's not singer quotation marks she is operatic opening these play play houses and these mm-hmm. these opera seasons because she's actually a singer and i'm not in the wrong for being there like that is so much the most it has nothing to do with bolstering her it's all self-serving it's all selfish it's all ego and that's a great scene for it because he like that's what the the teacher sees is this this is not about her and i feel kind of in the deflation in him it's like oh she she's as trapped here as I am, it's like, I, maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but that, that is so like visceral for me to like that, that ego trip of like my marriage and my political aspirations are ruined because of this situation. And I had to, I have to make sure that singer is not a joke. And that all leads up to the pinnacle of the, the best friend bit when he sends him back his declaration of principles mm. from earlier in the film. Yeah. Is that one of your favorite scenes then, Joel? I, sorry, Tim, I, I feel like I, I stepped on the end of yours. Mm. I, oh, I no. That, well, and then the only other, the, the other one too was just that when they have the scenes of, of the, the opera, like I really just enjoyed the, the chaos of like the performance, like everything going on before it and then kind of going into it and the, you know, and, and again, it was kind of like, it, it was a bittersweet thing because it's like you're seeing, kind of performance after performance but also knowing that she like hates it and she's kind of being forced and trapped into this thing and um but uh but again like you know just i guess the the recognition of like oh this is a musical performance like okay i get this this is this is my you know because you know you spend so much time like oh it's newspapers and politics and i'm like okay i'll, I'll be along for the ride i'm not interested in any of that so like you, you know the glimpses of actual like music that that you know were familiar to me i think that's a lot of why i like them too you know not not as a again not as a value judgment on the film itself more just like what actually connected with me and was familiar to me for me i i really liked the the death of the marriage uh sequence where it was just that dinner table just and them both getting older and getting more bitter embittered and i really liked that i thought that was really clever and really kind of funny but also sad like that that was a really great kind of crystallization and a great way to do that kind of keeping with the kind of collaging of these experiences i really like the chaos leading up to the operatic performance but i also liked that we got it from her perspective so we got the, that sequence that kind of wild uh, um places everybody and then we get it from the audience perspective 
And then when uh, she is telling it, we're seeing it from backstage and she's alone in this dark room and it's terrifying. It's just like so much, I don't know, like, because we'd seen it before, like just a great switch, bait and switch um, for the emotional moments in that. Um, I think the other one that I really liked was his speech for running for governor. That huge fucking room only dwarfed by Xanadu with that giant fucking ego trip of a poster behind. Like, it's great. And and what I kind of wanted to kind of extend this this segment and have everybody say what's their favorite thing from this that was used in something else. Because there's so many different like i I don't want to take them all um but that was very much like Patton, right him standing in front like this huge stage giving his speech with the giant flag behind him it it seems like a very direct reference to this i was interested to see if anybody else had favorite things that were lifted from this almost shamelessly (laughs) all of modern filmmaking no i i I don't know nothing jumps out at me Maybe just because I haven't thought about it, but also I I have trouble picking a favorite scene because the film doesn't feel like a collection of scenes to me, but as a single entity. So in that Star Trek answer of you. (laughs) In that in that regard, I'm not sure I'll be able to pick out anything that was plucked into other cinema specifically. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, I'll move on to my quote-unquote favorite scenes then sorry joel and then i i would love to hear more of what you spotted oh i'll i'll list um, a lot i've got a list <laughs> yeah please but i i'm going to pick out two to talk about uh the discussion with the banker what you mentioned tim in the in the newspaper when he's talking about the oh, million dollars oh there's a million dollars here but because every single step they start talking to each other and they're both sitting and kane is super relaxed and the banker's getting angrier and angrier but kane just gets happier and more energetic and every move the banker makes when he puts down the thing and when he leans forward and when he stands up kane matches but kane isn't reacting it's not like the banker stands up and len kane stands up it's that the banker starts to stand up and by the time he's finished kane has already been standing for two seconds he's on it because he knew the banker was going to do that he knew exactly what he was in. He knew the whole process. He knew the argument. He knew the lean forward. He knew the stand up. He knew all of that because that's how well he knew his caretaker, the guy who basically raised him. Even though he was going to all this trouble to antagonize him, he knew him that well that he could match him move for move, you know, without having to wait. Oh, he stood up. Well, I'll stand up. You know, he just, he, nope, he's going to stand up now. So three, two, ah, there we go. And, and <laughs> you know, by the time the banker finishes his move, Kane's made the same move already. And the banker just gets out and at every turn. I really love that. And paired with the vivacious energy of the young Wells is just makes for a brilliant scene. And then the other scene I want to talk about is, is kind of just, I don't know why this popped into my head, but we watched The Room, and there's that really ridiculously weird scene where he goes around destroying all the stuff in his bedroom. Well, yes. Citizen Kane does that in his yes. ex-wife's bedroom, which I guess answers your question, Joel. That's my favorite thing lifted wholesale. But there's something about the way it happens in The Room, like the whole rest of that film that doesn't feel right. You know, it's clunky and awkward, and it's... But in, in Kane... Even though he still moves jerkily from space to space and on the object, it feels like the explosive 
overflowing of emotion. And you can see it in the face because he just starts wrecking something and just kind of flows from object to object and from bed to bedside table to vanity. Uh, and whenever he hits a part of the room that's just wall, there's this moment not where the person looks around and goes, oh, where's my next mark? And then seeks that out. But where he just kind of stands and, and, and shakes with with emotion for a minute and sort of drifts in this vague spinning until something else happens to pass under his gaze and then argh, he slashes out and eventually there's nothing left and it, that I, I thought of the room so but i also thought wow this isn't as stilted or awkward as i might have expected if i was hearing about this scene or just watching the room it really works and you see it all in wells's face yes. do you want to finish up your list Jill? <laughs> well that's definitely one i thought of, and i think that's my favorite scene from the room like all all jokes aside it's like the thing that i think why so until he fucking humps the the, the dress the dress yeah. um but like i think that's definitely like he's he's channeling orson and like he, he's he's a cinephile i yeah i mean he, he has a respect for performances and he wants to be dramatic and why has this energy about him and i think that that scene as an homage to this is is perfect for that character and for why the character um so i i definitely saw that one when when he goes to visit the the uh the library uh, with the the journal of the the banker and that big shaft of shadow and light that's straight blade runner like that the, i i was shocked at at how how blade runner-esque that was um also the 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 um dancing girls when he hires all of the new uh writers is is wolf of wall street like Leo in Wolf of Wall Street is is almost channeling young Orson. It, it was shocking to me. Like I like it looks similar. The, that's what I was saying. Like his the facial and you kind of forget that because I think of Orson as bigger dude, bigger kind of jowl giant yeah. head, but like really thinned out. Like I was really shocked at kind of the parallels there. Um, so like the the whole like coming up in in the business and then like surrounding yourself with people you've poached from other things and then being this kind of spectacle and like everybody's making money and it's this giant dance sequence like that, that felt so Wolf of Wall Street. I'm trying to think what else the patent thing. Um, I think I, I saw a video of like the, the looming uh, silhouette of Xanadu in the background. Uh, Burton used as kind of the backdrop for Batman returns of like the, mm -hmm. Uh, Wayne Manor in the distance yeah I, I just I just thought those were really and I, I we as I had said like Scorsese really loves this film so like it doesn't surprise me at all that he would like latch on to those different things and kind of the yeah I, I I couldn't see that dancing girl sequence without seeing fucking Leo popping and locking and a very similar kind of energy like young dumb and full of cum <laughs> like <laughs> The ones I was thinking of are like any of the, I mean, the Simpsons references <laughs> Citizen right. Kane a lot. So like mm -hmm. all of the Mr. Burns, <laughs> you know, Charles uh, Kane, throughout the years, so many references. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and the, the final sequence, Raiders of the Lost Ark, like that, that's like same. Yeah. <laughs> They're the yeah. same picture. It's from the office. Like, um, we have top men searching for Rosebud. <laughs> <laughs> top <laughs> men. Top. 
Just a little thing I really loved about this film that's indicative of films of this era is the more American an act or a character is, the more British their accent <laughs> in these old films, like the 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 last gasp of the uh, fast talking high trousers thing, like uh senator thomas Paine in mr smish goes to washington has a full-on british accent and he's like this senator <laughs> like i i really like with the the banker it's a full-blown british accent and it's crazy with orson who did so many shakespearean roles and i mean was a, a new york theater performer like i've heard a lot of him doing an accent so it was really kind of cool to kind of see him juxtapose and just doing a straight like his his cadence it's also really distracting to to hear him and then remember pinky in the brain and brain sounds exactly like orson wells oh man he does oh boy i'll take this moment i guess to pivot a little bit kane is based not entirely but almost entirely (laughs) on william randolph hearst who was a real person and and a lot of the the newspaper stuff is tray out of hearst history yellow journalism you provide the pictures I'll provide, I'll provide the war. The war. Is a discussion that happens <laughs> in the film, right? To go to war with Spain over, you know, Cuba and the Philippines and Guam and all that sort of thing. I, I don't want to talk too much about Hearst because I plan on bringing Mank to this at some point. Um, I mean, ideally, I plan on seeing it in a theater first, but <laughs> we'll see. And so I figure we'll talk a lot more about the real life Hearst if and when we do that. But I do want to talk for a moment about. Hearst Castle, the real life Xanadu, which is not remotely as insane as the film Xanadu makes it out to be. Um, you know, there are plenty of pictures on the internet. It is lavish. It is beyond lavish. It is a single big, weird, church like mansion of beautiful architecture, the interior rooms of which are kind of a just mishmash of influences and shapes and spaces and furniture. And then that's the big house. And then there are several other smaller structures that are all just miniaturized versions of that, except that they're completely different aesthetically. So it's kind of chaotic. It's lots to take in. And there's a whole outdoor pool that's very Greco-Roman. And there's a whole indoor pool that's, I think, the one called the Roman pool. I, I mean, it's, it's insane. And you should definitely look it up. But it's what's like interesting Disneyland. is that... I think I'm looking at it right now. I've, I've like, been there. It's yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's just incredible. And I think what's interesting is that Xanadu is sort of, in the film, it's a caricature of a place, which is such a weird thing to say for a film, and especially for an old film. Because when I think of caricature of place, I tend to think of more you get a caricature of the people, right? The the silly Frenchmen or, or what have you. And the closest we come to, car- to, to geographical and physical caricature is cartoons old Bugs Bunny and stuff, or even just Toontown, the movie and Roger Rabbit, you get this sort of wild sense of playing with space. So to take a real place that was already kind of hard to wrap your head around and then just emphasize every single piece of it until you got this, you know, Maleficent castle on the hill sort of result, it, I don't know what to say about it, but it was impactful, you know, rewatching. Yeah, caricature so, yeah, place is definitely really fascinating as a concept. I don't think I've ever heard of that or seen that done. Like, because I mean, like, there, there, there are castles, right? Like, there's gothic castles and like Dracula's castle of like these sinister, pla- like fictional representations of these kind of horrors. But like, to caricature a place 
I guess like you do that with like Disney World or those kinds of things where it's like, um, uh, what is it? Um, yeah. Moose World? The Marty, Marty Moose stuff from fucking uh, Vacation, right? Like the, there's those type of things, but not huh. not quite ah. the sinister way that this does because it's very garish and haunting yeah. and looming and and isolating. And the fucking fire, like you said, Tim, about the, the fireplace. I I didn't realize how big it was until he walks over to it and it's huge dwarf like it's almost like a giant would use it like <laughs> it's crazy. Book I read once used the phrase a fireplace big enough to burn a bus in and I, I always like to <laughs> no use kidding. That for Citizen Kane. Yeah. But yeah, it's and like yeah, it it Hearst Castle is kind of it's not quite so sinister. Right. But it is sort of off-putting the whole place. But it's also beautiful and luxurious and intriguing. And the place itself is a little bit hard to capture in a word, much like King and much like the purpose of the film. And then one last note about Hearst before I'm done with him is I still really love the James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies. Yes, I was thinking that the Pierce whole Brosnan time. movie with the stealth boat. And I, I think we talked before during our Bond episode about how when the Soviet Union went away, the Bond films kind of struggled to find a villain. And, you know, Goldeneye relied on, you know, angry ex-Soviets, right? But the other Pierce Brosnan films kind of had to look elsewhere and another day settled on Korea for some reason and, you know, et cetera. But Tomorrow Never Dies had this really fascinating 21st century Hearst approach to yellow journalism and manipulation of the public through the media and through fear, which turned out to be remarkably prescient for the internet, kind of by accident. But I also think was a really fancy, really just fascinating, great idea for a film and for a Bond villain. And they use the phrase, you provide the pictures, I'll provide the war there too. Uh, Which is, you know, again, directly in reference to Hearst. So I just, I think that's a neat little moment and also an opportunity for me to gush about one of my favorite bonds <laughs> <laughs> it's jonathan price who plays the villain in that right yes that's right i can i have so much trouble with his name but he's mm. brilliant and Elliot thinking, carver is his character right yeah zeke you were talking about like what the the modern equivalent of citizen kane might be and I think, unfortunately, it would be a, a Zuckerbergian type thing, but Zuckerberg is not as compelling. But Social Network is really good, so like, um, I don't know that that Social Network is very different in like its audience and its its ex- execution and its commentary. But I think like the modern tech media era, I don't think we have as much sympathy for or reverence for i mean like a cronkite figure you could probably maybe follow along and like if if he had that kind of like delusion not delusions of grandeur but like this idea of a white a a large life lived emptily in the same way kane that might have been the last kind of gasp of that kind of figure now i want a cronkite biopic (laughs) that'd be awesome i wonder if we're coming at that from the wrong direction and we don't need to focus on media because the point wasn't necessarily that he was a media mogul. The point was that despite being so famous and so in the public eye and so rich and his life was a big life, that even a, a you know in-depth examination of that life through the people who knew it best still struggles to yield truth. It really just has to be someone who's in the public eye. Now I want it to be Robin Williams. Media related. 
Ooh. It's tricky though, because I'm trying to think oh, like when they described him, uh, when they described Kane, right? Like there was the balance of being well known, but then you know, early on they talk about how he was kind of loved by many and hated by many. I don't know if that's an important balance to walk. I feel like it was because as you're learning more and more about his life, right? Like you see, okay, here at the end, he's got this massive castle and he's, um, you know, not liked by many and he's just this, this hardened old man. And then through the stories, you learn more about him. So I feel like if you go too strongly one way or the other, like I feel like Robin Williams is too good, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know that, I don't know that Zuckerberg or like Elon Musk is too favorable right now. <laughs> I think they're too far on the other side of the spectrum. Right. So I don't know who would, who would hit that middle ground. I don't know. We need like the, the controversy of Charlie Sheen, but the ubiquity of Robin Williams and the I'm almost thinking like Britney Spears, right? Like as this, this victim of a misogynist news and world, like a, an interneting world who ultimately becomes the victim. She's not an egomaniac in the way that Kane was, but it'd be kind of like an interesting lens not to use her for more fucking entertainment. But like, <laughs> I, I was just thinking recently with like the documentary that came out and, and just kind of our, the re refocusing of her narrative on her as victim rather than what uh, uh mouseketeer gone crazy which was the the byline was I, that that just so that kind of transition of like the view in popular culture of how it shifts it, yeah mm, i like that one i think that's a good one and scott to your point about uh hearst castle i was just gonna or uh yeah hearst castle i was just gonna say that um i don't know i feel like that's one thing about Citizen Kane is, is starting off with um, showing Xanadu and, you know, they're carrying two of each animal into there and, you know, grander than the pyramids or, you know, all those sort of things. Like it does a good job of a place being a character, right. And kind of, you know, that's the very first thing you see kind of, well, I, one of the first things you see is they start to describe him and it kind of, levels what you think of him as a person based on the things that he's gathered and what he's built to himself. It's just a good character in its own right too. And then the shots of it are like you all said, very harrowing and very dark. And yeah, I just think it's an effective piece in general. Um, it's great how it looms throughout the whole film, right? Like the first views that we get is in the distance and kind of like this dark on the hill, but like we see it at the end really that's when we really get into it but you've heard it talked about so much and it's just like this looming giant thing that he spent all this time and it was never finished and it was like and so by the time it shows up it has so much exposition about telling us what xanadu as a force as a character in the narrative has been and then when it's there it's like huge like it's huge and larger than life in actual like in the frame but it had in the the mystique of it has been looming the whole film as well which is great okay i, I want to raise a point of order on on something that that's does not age really well in this film and it's bald caps and age makeup <laughs> but it doesn't really matter because you're not looking at them Anytime, like when there's a close up on it, it's like, oh, that's an unfortunate ball cap, and you can kind of see the seams and everything. But then it's in Xanadu. So if you're looking at the bald cap, you're missing the fucking point. 
I just thought that was really interesting. Like that's, <laughs> that's another theater thing, you know, you'll be, yeah. you'll be checking the scenery over between shows and going, Oh, this is not a doorknob. This is a disaster. <laughs> Anybody who's looking at this is going to, and the answer is always what, why are they looking at this doorknob? when there are spotlights on actors sitting on the opposite <laughs> side of the stage, right? Like if they're looking at this doorknob, we got bigger problems, you know, the show is boring, right? Isn't that what Harrison yeah. Ford said to uh, uh, Mark Hamill? Hamill was like, we just got out of the uh, uh, garbage compactor. Why isn't our hair wet? Aren't they going to miss the continuity? And Harrison goes, not that kind of picture, kid. <laughs> if they're asking those kind of questions, we're already, it's, it's over already. <laughs> So you said there's kind of like one agreed upon meaning to rosebud, rosebud. So what what is it? What is the consensus oh. that sort of people have drawn? The consensus, I guess consensus isn't the word, but the thing you just hear all the time, people just chuck out there like it's a foregone thing, is that he's thinking of rosebud on his death because he that was the last time he was truly happy. Slash that his life being whisked away to the life of riches away from his simple life made him miserable and money didn't buy him happiness and et cetera, et cetera, right? And yeah, you could absolutely say that, that, that the simplicity of growing up there with his parents in their boarding home in the snow was the last real happiness he found and that the rest of the film is this man floundering, this man exercising control over everything in an attempt to turn the world into that happiness again. Yeah, I mean, that's we'll talk about that, but I... On the other hand, you could draw the same conclusion the reporters do, that to try to inflict meaning onto an entire existence through one moment of it at the very end is foolish, and that you need to instead examine the whole and its details and its pieces, and you know that you can't just take the last bit and look at what that points to and go, oh, I'm done. That's also a perfectly valid interpretation. It's, it's, I think it's the one I favor. Um, but there's also, of course, the simpler version of last words are as meaningless as first words, who cares, <laughs> right? Which is sort of a, a blunter version, but, right? And, and in the same way that the reporters have their whole conversation about why did we just send this guy all over the country to talk to all these people? And in their case, it's just, well, we did get our story out of it, oh, well. But it sort of invites the audience to have the same discussion why did we learn, what did we get out of this story? And in the same way that everyone, oh, Rosebud, the sled, it's kind of a rote, you know, it's not even a spoiler anymore, right? Rosebud, the sled, sure. People don't have to tack on to that. Oh, but yeah, the money didn't bring happiness and neither did the fame and uh, the simple life was better and that was the last time he was happy. And I, it kind of annoys me that they tack all that on to the end as a foregone conclusion, you know? But, I mean, it's perfectly valid. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a great insight and the, you can tell people pay attention to the film to come to that conclusion, but it annoys me when they sort of take it as a guarantee. Do you, do you all want to talk about your interpretations of Rosebud at all? Sure. Is that something any of you would like to touch on? Yeah, please. Yeah, I think I fall into the, to the, I don't care, whatever is, is kind of how, because I mean, like, because it's ruined for me from fucking The Office, where it's like the different interpretations, which I think they're both wrong, is oscar and and uh daryl talking about it it's like that doesn't it is something oscar says rosebud is a reference to citizen kane where it's something that explains why somebody was the way they were what doesn't i i don't get that 
And then Craig or uh, Daryl says it's um, just represents something that was important to him as a kid. And they're like very violent and angry about it. And it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm like, like, I, I think the film is so much more than that, that kind of last thing. And they burn it. And I think it's so much more important for having been burnt as an answer to like, how do we explain this one man in what like this story is like the, the byline, right? Like what, what can we put on the headline? Um, so again, like the tweeness of that last, like maybe every man's life or Rosebud is a part of a larger jigsaw puzzle and then burn it fucking down. Like that, that to me is what the Rosebud thing is, is like what you're established, like attaching meaning to doesn't fucking matter because it's all going to go into rubbish tip at the end of your life anyway. Um, but like, I think the, the, what it was pointing to is like this kind of sense of nostalgia. I don't know if it's like the last time he was happy, but it was like the last time he had familial love. Cause after that, there was no, there's no warmth really. There's romantic love, but it's kind of a twisted, weird romantic love. When he comes back with his first wife, his demeanor has changed completely. Like he left Jordan Belfort and he came back like a mouse so I don't know, like, it, it, it's kind of like his weird, his sense of abandonment from his mother. I don't know if that impacted, like, how he interacted with women and, and kind of what led to, maybe it's like a, a, the simplicity of that moment and the idea that he wasn't aware of the larger, the innocence of that moment. Rosebud might represent that, where it's like, this was the last time I didn't have any worries because I wasn't whisked away from any kind of familial love and affection and I'm playing in the fucking snow. Like, why am I being, <laughs> it's odd to kind of have a juxtapose of like the warmth of that familial region, but it's in the middle of winter. Yeah. But, but like, I think at the end of the day, I just come down on like, I'm glad it got burnt because that, that seemed more powerful than it having like a, da -da 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 -da, like a, the end of the drum roll. Here it is. I just thought it was more valuable for having been burnt. And it did kind of like feel like it was more of like a MacGuffin, you know, like yeah. this is the thing that's going to send him on the journey, but it's actually the journey that's what's really important. You know, the, the whole story, not just, yeah, the one word, but, but without that one word, they wouldn't have bothered to send the reporter out to like get the story. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that was, and that was the thing too, is I was trying hard not to, force meaning onto it as i as i tend to do with things and i think that's kind of I, I, yeah i guess like I, yeah i mean it could have a simplistic meaning that that you know that's you know with the globe and you know he was just maybe at that point he was probably the most unhappy he's been until you know except for when he was taken away from his home so it was kind of like that that you know wanting to revert to that you know um but Ooh. not that it's necessarily the like an opposite me. interpretation, like he's not remembering his last time he was happy. He's remembering his other worst moment ever. Yeah, I get. Well, I'm, and I mean, I, I guess I was more thinking about it the moment right before his other worst moment. You know, yeah, but 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 that that chunk of his life was bookended by the two worst times of his life. You know, and it's like that everything in between has been kind of like okay, this really shitty thing happened to you as a kid, and then this is the worst thing that's happened to you since then. So it's just like, what the fuck has all of this been? You know, and kind of like, a, yeah, like a somewhat reverting to that, you know, like this is this is the last time I was really happy or, you know, and, and you know, that maybe that was that he was so focused because he was 
that unhappy at that moment, you know? And I mean, it was obviously there. Cause yeah, there was that moment you said where he's like, Oh, I'm going to my mom's storage unit to pick up. And, you know, it's kind of like vaguely mentioned, but it wasn't a priority to him at that point, you know? Yeah. And I, I guess that's part of it too, is like, I mean, it, it seems like a kind of simplistic answer that it's just like, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, most people I feel like will look back on the, their lives, uh, you know, when they were a child and, you know, especially like, as you get older, you know, like when you're a child, you can't wait to grow up. And it's like, you know, Oh, I'm not going to have a bedtime and I can eat ice cream every time I want. It's then you're an adult. It's like, wait, I have a bedtime and I can't eat ice cream every time I want. Why the fuck was I such in a hurry to be a, come an adult when I was a kid, you know? And it's like, I don't know, like they're, you know, so it's, I think it's maybe just something as simple as that. Like, you know, like, wow. Yeah. Things, things were great at this moment and this is when it stopped. And this is when I, you know, and, and I guess that's part of what makes it tough to tell too, because we don't know a lot of what happened. You know, I mean, I guess they talk about it, but between that moment and then when we see him as a, what, 20 something year old, you know, when he's like a mover and shaker at that point and going to buy the the newspaper and all that stuff, you know, so you know, it definitely seemed like when he was whisked away, it was like his parents deciding like, okay, this is what's going to be best for you, you know, and maybe that's why he was so hell bent on doing everything for himself, even if it was un under the guise of doing it for other people. And that was, you know, that was the time when he could just be without having to either be what his parents thought he should be or him being what he thought he wanted to be. And, and I, I guess that's part of it too, is like, you know, how much are we overcomplicating, you know, instead of just being like, yeah, it was a happy moment as a child. Like that, that's, that's it. You know? And, yeah. I think I, I like the open ended open endedness of it. And I think the interpretation I have probably depends on like how optimistic or pessimistic I am on uh, any given day, maybe, but because I think at the, at its best, right. It's innocence and it's a, a fond memory and it's something you loved. Um, also shout out to him for being a Colorado boy and, and thinking back to those <laughs> moments. I love him for that. Um, at its worst though, right? Like gets thrown in the fire. No one remembers, no one cares, right? Like you don't leave things like that behind anyway. So what does it all matter? But I think Tim, I, I had the same interpretation as you or the same thought of the, about it being a MacGuffin, right? That's less about what it is, but it took the reporter to all of these different people and I think that's one thing that I enjoyed is that Rosebud was so personal to Kane, right? They went and talked to an ex-wife and a best friend and uh, an early mentor, all these people. And no one knew what Rosebud was, right? None of the people the reporter talked to knew. It's nothing he shared with them outright. Um, it wasn't a simple answer for them to give the reporter. So it wasn't a simple answer to interpret. So I don't know. I think that's part of it too, right? Is is we see Kane change throughout his life from a fun loving boy to like an ambitious kind of wild care for a young man to a, a hardened, you know, old man. And, um, you know, and all of the people that they talk to have this different interpretation of him too, just like in, in our lives, right. You know, a friend looks us, at us different than a family member, than a coworker. Um, so I don't know. I, I like that. And I kind of want to put that, that lens onto it. Just, rosebud being so open-ended that it's just you know how we the viewer interpret it in a way too again I, I yeah i just think it's more about the journey <laughs> that sounds corny when you say it like that but it's more about the journey and getting to know um kane than than anything it's another thing stolen by another film it's the inception ending is it like <laughs> like <laughs> crystallized of like what does that mean does it matter are we just putting too much on it but i think the other thing like we're not 
we're going MacGuffin change chasing because the film insists on it. I don't think it's wrong for us to try and imbue it with meaning because the film is t- spending all its time telling you that it's important. And it's all like, I'm almost frustrated that it does that because you kind of, we have the privilege of observing this, knowing that Rosebud is a thing that's important to the film and that it's kind of open-ended watching it for the first time. I think also that audience would be kind of frustrated coming out of it of like, what, what the fuck was the sled about? Like, and they burned it down and it like the jigs, what? Like I, I, again, like kind of ahead of its time in in that sense. And it, like kind of the first kind of disappointing doesn't really put it on a, a platter for you. I think that's, that's another testament to its legacy is that's the first, like what the fuck ending. <laughs> Scott, you you talked about what is universally accepted, and you talked about the different options. But do you have an interpretation that you like? I, yeah, I mean, I I like to fall into the, I guess the the reporter's conclusion that life is more than our last words, but also the part the conclusion that they don't draw, which is that it's more than our actions, more than our possessions, and even more than just the memories of the people who outlive us that even when you bring all of that together into one place, it still doesn't quite grasp what a life is. Be interesting to watch this. I haven't seen Boyhood, but I'm really fascinated by the idea of Boyhood yeah. as this kind of like charter or this this record of growing up kind of, and I mean, obviously the only, like what is the Rick and Morty video game where you play the dude, the, the dude's life, Randy or something is like, he's taking him off the grid. Like the only way to really like perceive a whole life would be to live it. So I just, I'm, I'm interested in like films that attempt to, to represent that through little snapshots or like the tree of life or like these different kind of filmmaking experiments in what is a life? How do we quantify it? Because that's, I mean, story is is inherently metaphorical and wanting to be extrapolated, but to kind of get into the minutia of making it representative of a whole life is is a huge titanic task. And I, I think it, it's something that is continuing to be interesting and people keep trying to do it. And I think this is a, a great testament to that legacy of like, how do we characterize I mean, that's what art is, right? Like we're all trying to represent what it means to be alive rather than not. I think that's an interesting thing that ties into the whole idea of like, oh, if we did a modern version with social media, you know, that's a, that's a perfect representation of that where it's like, you know, what people represent themselves as on social media and how people perceive them on social media versus who they actually are, what their actual life is. Yeah. Wow. Gone to a very philosophical place. I love this. This is great. <laughs> and on that note, we'll move on to my favorite segment. <laughs> Unless well, Scott has more to last say. Thing. <laughs> Only because speaking of the, the things that make up the life and the how the parts we get are only what the people remember. In the opening newsreel, they mentioned that his first wife and son died in a car accident. We don't see it. And then it never comes up again. Because at that point, it's not they're not a part of his life anymore when that happened to them. And that point we're getting the story from the second wife who is obviously you know lived it so she has her own stuff to talk about maybe can never mention it to her i'm also but, like yeah. when they brought that up and then never talked about it again it's like did kane kill his wife and son like i <laughs> i was like I, and that, there's no indication we right? don't know it, but yeah all right so well it is time now Joel. sorry <laughs> 
It's my favorite segment. It is it is time for <laughs> another situational movie recommendations. So, I'm not going to say it. Yeah, I have, a, I have a <laughs> say it every time. I haven't. I've actively resisted, Tim. <laughs> I haven't for once. Um, inspired by inspired by last episode. It's what is the film you find yourself having to qualify to people? Or not qualify, but to to manage their expectations. Right, like what I did with you. I said, don't be fooled by people who call this the best film ever. It's just a good movie. <laughs> just good, you know, quote unquote just, right? But it's it's just a good movie. Don't be fooled. Go into it with that mindset. What is the film you find yourself having to give those sorts of explanations for? I mean everything and I've brought I don't to the really have an answer because like. <laughs> but well, right. No, I see <laughs> uh, so yeah, because I was gonna say I don't have an answer because it's this. So there you go. <laughs> I, it's the thing. I don't think I've brought enough of the films to people where I've had to, but I imagine that the ones that it would be would be. I mean, like Stalker is a hard fucking sell, right? Like, I, I brought you guys in with no concept of what that film was, and it was like, what the fuck is this? Like, it's a long, drawn out sci-fi thing with no effects, but it, it's 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 strange. Like, I think I I just have a failure of vocabulary when I'm trying to summarize those kinds of things. And I'm also like trying to preserve surprise because I value that so highly. So like I misinterpret like, oh, it's cool. Like I, I, I have usually an in the door with the things that I want to be surprised by. So I, I don't offer that to other people. I'm, I'm just spiraling. Um, well, I had one, uh, an example. It's not necessarily one that I get, or I guess the closest thing is Requiem for a Dream, uh, and, and partially because of the, the, the sort of the funny story with a, a friend of mine back during my undergrad. I was like telling about it. I was like, oh, this film's amazing, but, you know, but don't, don't watch it in a good, if you're in a good mood because it's kind of, it's depressing. And I was like, but then again, don't watch it if you're really depressed. Either. <laughs> and it was just kind of like, you know, just you, you feel like you gotta, you gotta prep people for that. You know, you can't just be like, here, watch this film. And just whenever, you know, if your mom comes over to visit, watch it with her, it's fine. You know, it's like, no, it's like this, this needs a special occasion. And I don't know what that occasion is. Um, we also watched it with my cousin on his wedding day. Cause we were in, uh, we were in New York. My cousin got married in New York and we had gone shopping like the day before. And we were at like, I think a Best Buy and I saw it was like a two pack. It was pie and Requiem for a dream. And I bought it. So I happened to, those were like the only two movies I happened to have on me. So the next morning before his wedding, it was like, Oh, let's, let's watch a movie. What do you got? I was like, well, this one's in black and white. So let's watch this. instead. <laughs> but, but, but anyway, like, so aside from that moment where it just kind of came up and we watched it. Yeah. It's like, anytime I'm, telling someone to watch it's I, I very rarely tell someone to watch it because it's just like yeah you can't just be like yeah watch it you'll be fine it's like no like you, you have to be ready for this but i don't know how to tell them how to be ready for it you know it's like uh and i don't i don't want to mention things now because i don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen that but it's like it, it's yeah it's 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 really weird you do have to kind of walk on eggshells around that film and, and, and terms of you know how to get people to watch it without them just being like hey fuck you man i watched that movie <laughs> you know <laughs> have, you, have you guys all seen requiem for a dream no i haven't seen it okay so all this is law okay so so yeah you don't kind of understand the the the, the significance of that and how weird it, maybe one day i'll actually bring that i know that i already did my darren aronofsky trilogy of favorites but maybe i'll bring it just for the sake of you guys being like hey fuck you tim <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice coda to the aronofsky series yeah 
it's and that's the thing is it's it's a it's a great film but it's like you have to you have to kind of be ready for it and it's very easy to just be like why the fuck did i watch this and it's like you know even with myself like i i can't see a circumstance where i would want to watch it again you know unless it was for like again something like this like okay let's bring this so we can talk about it but it's just it's it's hard to watch you know and it's hard to know how to 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 you know there's the part of me that wants to share it with people i don't know i don't think it's so that i we can share the trauma of watching it but it is it is a a, a brilliant film in the way it's put together and the way it's acted and, and written and all this but like it's just you're you're not in a good place after you watch it you know and it's it's hard to sort of innocently kind of place that in someone's hands be like just just watch it you'll be fine you know and 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 you know without feeling like oh man this person has a shitty week it was my fault (laughs) this is a tough one um all i can think of are movies that so first i was thinking comedy movies since comedy is kind of subjective right and so sometimes you'll have something that makes you crack up and you're watching with somebody else and then you're they're not reacting the same way and you're kind of like oh well it's funny because so i was that's kind of just broadly what I was thinking. I was also thinking movies that um, just maybe didn't age well, either like super nostalgic movies or comedies where the comedy itself hasn't aged well. So um, I don't know. I love like Airplane and Blazing Saddles. And I don't know that there are too many people that haven't seen those, right? But there there are some pieces of humor uh, where you, you know, or some, I guess just to put it, bluntly some slurs right so you'll watch those again now and it's just like oh i forgot that that was used so much or oh i forgot that they made that joke so many times that can kind of be hard to watch in a modern modern setting um then i guess more innocently right for me like things like space jam and, and the mighty ducks where it's like i love those as a kid i still love those now but i'll watch them with my wife or other people and it's like oh boy well this you know maybe isn't a great movie um, <laughs> it's not a cinematic masterpiece but it's something that i love so i don't know I, I, that's kind of where my head's at just things that you're that you loved once or that were hilarious once and then you're watching again or watching with somebody else who doesn't get the humor or doesn't get it themselves because they didn't see it when they were a kid and it's just not quite clicking um but i can't quite think of too many like exact movies where i've had to be like okay brace yourself for this, right? It's more of the reactive sort of thing. I think the podcast has made made this category for the films that I've brought. So like now I feel like I'm very much more wanting to to preface the things. Like Stalker is something I, I would have to explain. Like you're in for three hours of silent existentialists, existentialism. Um, playtime, I think, I think it, it physical comedies and and kind of silent comedies are something that i have that kind of anxiety about like everybody can laud chaplin as this brilliant person but like bringing a film there's a lot of anxiety about it because it's all visual a lot of stuff that we consume now like we can have our phone and we don't really have to follow it all that much unless like we're really into it so like a silent movie black and white physical comedy like it's all if and if the jokes don't land it, it kind of ruins it I think I also have that nostalgia, the st- nostalgia glasses for like Batman Forever. I don't preface it with, this is bad. Hold on. I'm like, I fucking love this movie. It's shut up. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not the right way to do it. Like, Godzilla 98 is an objectively bad movie. I love it so much because it was my first Godzilla movie. So, like, those kinds of things. And I don't know that I share those with other people too much. Maybe Alice. Alice humors me. <laughs> um, 
but like with those it's like i'll watch them myself i think the last one was like gods of egypt right like that that the whole premise of the like guilty pleasures or unapologetic pleasures i think we rebranded it or something like that whereas like that one was like hold on like it it it's all these things but if you let all those go it's it's entertaining and and that's probably the best example of it that's a good and hard one geez that's what she Thank said you. yeah i just i mean I, I feel bad not having another broader answer i guess you could choose my unapologetic pleasure as well right and that movie doesn't speed, need right? to be defi- defended though well, Need for speed was great <laughs> oh right but i because this just this is the film that inspired the question so it's also my answer i, I feel a little bad about that i guess, it is I guess maybe lahane needs a little bit of explanation too if only to say you know the point is to just watch the people go about their day don't be looking for a movie plot mm-hmm. you know I, I find that helpful but i think too fast it, too it, furious it, might be one too right i love that movie but I have to I have to preface it with like, okay, this this franchise didn't know what it was yet. And it is so evident. <laughs> and you kind of need to see what came before and what came after to really appreciate what a gem of nonsense it is. <laughs> it's really telling that the Need for Speed movie didn't come out until after the Fast and Furious movie had <laughs> become something else completely different from what it started as. Because what it started as was very much, what if this, you know, 90s video game series was a film? <laughs> like, <laughs> I think it's neat how they left room for that only after taking a total right turn. <laughs> It's a good one. Yeah, those were great answers. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you all for your wonderful answers, and thank you all for watching Citizen Kane with me. Yeah, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. I am. I, I'm even more glad then that I did preface this film as I did at the end of the last episode because I think that really brought the expectations in line properly. Or maybe not. Maybe you're all smarter than I give you credit for. <laughs> but um, you know, I, mean, I think it's a little of both, maybe. <laughs> but. Uh, I'm glad we didn't get into a discussion about greatest film ever because we discussed that too pretty well about most impactful film ever. Maybe. But, you know, quality of the film, much more like what we discussed. Yeah, this was a good episode. I liked it. I, it's got me reconsidering my future film plans now to bring you all more old movies. I don't know. We'll see. But for now, we're looking forward to what Tim is going to be bringing us next month. Tim, what will you be bringing? Well, now that... I've gone through, you know, the Matrix trilogy and Fight Club and, you know, my my favorites. It was kind of like, okay, now I can dip into maybe things that are a little more obscure and kind of, you know, especially because like, I feel like at the beginning, you know, like with Pi and, and Koyaanisqatsi, it was kind of like, oh, what the hell are these? So um, it was kind of nice. I kind of, I, I dug deep and I was looking through, I, I didn't realize I had been coming up with a list of films that it's like, Oh, I'd love to bring this to the podcast, but it's like, I can't, I have two more matrix movies and fight club that I have to bring first. And that's, I mean, that's a year of picks, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so this one's definitely been sitting around for a while. So uh, it's under the skin starring Scarlett Johansson. And I don't know. Yeah, I've heard so, really good things about that. It's uh, and I and speaking of our, our previous thing, I don't I don't want to preface this with with much because I kind of went into it knowing a little bit about it, and it does kind of help frame what you're what you're seeing. Um, but I'm almost kind of curious of like you know maybe the less you know the more shocking some of the things will be being like you know because it is 
you know, and, and you may read it, uh, you know, it has a short description where you're just kind of like, oh, okay, that's this, you know, but I'll leave it up to you if you want to read sort of the short synopsis, which doesn't really spoil anything, but kind of sets the film up. Or if you want to go into it completely cold and be like, okay, what is this? You know, don't, don't dig too much about it. But like I said, I think on, um, well, I noticed it's on Canopy. Um, it has sort of like a short synopsis. So, you know, that just at least kind of sets the stage. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited too, because I feel like it's a nice break away from a lot of the, the the stuff that I got into sort of in the in the middle of Movie Mumble because I was, you know, kind of so uh, entrenched in my favorites and things like that. So to just kind of have this, and I've, I've only seen it once before. Um, you know, I'd heard about it a while ago and finally found it. I think it was on Netflix for a little while. And I was just like, oh, damn. And after watching it, I was like, I need to bring this to Movie Mumble. But again, it was like, this was about a year ago and I already had the next year planned. So it'll be fun to bring some of these other little fringe movies that I've been thinking about for a while, but couldn't interrupt my my favorite cycle with. Awesome. So if any of you guys happen to see it, have seen it or seen previews or know anything about it, okay. No context. <laughs> no. Good. Okay, good. <laughs> So we'll, we'll leave it at that. And I, and the, the, the one shame though, is I do kind of wish this is one we could have watched in person. Mm-hmm. Um, then again, I may ruin stuff by kind of like looking at you guys for your reactions <laughs> to things, you know, just because it's like, you know, like, and I, I actually watched a little bit of it a little while ago when I saw that it was on canopy and I was like, Oh, cool. And I just couldn't help but like, kind of like going through to some a few parts and there were some things that I didn't remember that I was just like, Oh shit, that's right. I forgot this happened, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's different. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very different from the matrix sequels and fight club. So I'm interested to hear, <laughs> you know, what, what the reaction is going to be, you know, this is, this is definitely more back to my, my pie and Karnaskazi days of the, the types of stuff I was picking. So. Awesome. Oh, very nice. I'm excited. Really glad that uh, we've managed to keep doing this. You know, digitally, I know it's a shame that we aren't all together, but I, you know, this is still great, even as it is. And yeah, the end is in sight, my friends. We're getting closer. So soon we'll be able to look over. (laughs) No, no, you scared me. I was like, what do you mean? You didn't know, Joel? We're all going to do a murder-suicide bet. Um, <laughs> we're going to smash snow globes and then uh, reenact our otherwise favorite film, Death Scenes. No, um, you know, so you better get picked. We... That's why I'm bringing Blue Hawaii to the podcast. No. Anyway, um, anyway uh, you know, we'll finally be back together and be able to see each other's faces sooner uh, in reactions as we go. I, I talk about in the intro about how we get more of the experience when we share it with people we care about. And I think the discussion is only part of that experience. The watching together is the other part. The discussion is still most of that experience. So thank you all very much for enduring with me and Joel, especially for your sound work that you've really, you know, really gone through all this long distance stuff. But really, thank you all. I'm delighted to have you in my life and on this podcast. Whatever they say about my life when I die, I hope you three are there to tell my story to the reporter. <laughs> That's yeah. There you go. All right. Thanks nice. for enduring, listeners. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. Rosebud. Did you know Movie Mumble has its very own Twitter account? Please follow us on Twitter at MovieMumbleNTG and tweet at us with questions, reviews, or recommendations of things you'd like us to watch next. Scott, that was the sweetest thing 
That was so nice. Oh my uh, god. Uh, like and I, I yeah, I, I I didn't want to take away from how sweet it was by what I was thinking is like I'm probably gonna be gone before you, honestly, because <laughs> I'm a lot older. 